Well, today we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be covering the whole chapter. So I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, you can raise your hand and we'll get you one right now. Need a Bible? Raise your hand. Nope? Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, as we've been going through this book, we, re- we realize that Paul in his second missionary journey was there for a short time in Thessalonica, and then persecution came. They had to flee. And uh, that was the desire of, of the believers, that, that he would go, and, and they made a deal with the city and so forth. But either, either way, um, the naysayers, the enemies of Paul, are telling the Thessalonica, Paul doesn't really love him. He was just there to lord it over him. He has no intentions of returning. And, of course, all this was not true. And he had to tell them in the last chapter, I've wanted to come many times, but Satan's hindered me. That must have been an eye-opener for them, going, wow, we need to really pray for Paul. We need to really pray that he's not hindered in any of his tasks or ministries. We're sitting here thinking about ourselves and how, uh, you know, rude Paul has been to us, and the reality is he's not been rude at all. It's He's under deep spiritual battle. And he said plainly in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, our rejoicing? It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Paul was greatly thankful for them. He prayed for them. He constantly thought about them. He tells them he loves them. He had a clear desire to come back to them. So I think Paul originally thought, hey, we're going to be back at Thessalonica in no time at all. And every time he started to go back, he's like, I'll explain to them why we, it took so long, and I'll tell them the things I want to tell them. But if finally Paul figured it out, I'm, I don't know when I'm going to get back to them. I better write them a letter. So realize this is the first time Paul has ever written a letter to the church. This is the first time. This is the first letter. And he writes this letter to them and sends it by Timothy, his son in the faith, who he liked to keep with him and near him. And it was a great sacrifice to send Timothy to them. But he felt that it would reveal to them his true heart uh, if, they, if he sent t- Timothy and not Luke or Titus or Silas or somebody else. Well, looking at verse 1 and 2 this morning. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, to minister, a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. So he said, when I could no longer endure it. It's interesting. If you look at the various Bible translations, they almost all of them translate it differently. Because the, the word we really don't have in English. Uh, the old King James says we no longer could forbear. The NIV says when we could stand it no longer. The ESV said when we could bear it no longer. The New American Standard said when we could no longer endure it. In essence, Paul is saying like a parent, I'm freaking out. <laughs> I was like, how is it doing? If, you, if you've been a parent and you know what that's like, when your kid's supposed to be home at curfew at 10 o'clock and it's midnight and you're steaming and you're getting ready to give them a piece of your mind and then it gets to 10.45 and it, you change. You're just now freaking out going, I, I'll love them, I'll hug them, I'll kiss them. I'll, I'll, you know, I just want them coming through that door. This is what Paul is saying. I, I, don't, I have no idea. Did you guys quit walking with the Lord altogether? Did you all end up in prison? Did the, the, the church just sort of dwindle? One week it was 100 people, the next week 50 and 10 until there was only three or four people left. And, you know, he had no idea. So finally, I had to find out. You know, it's interesting. Paul sort of had this towards other churches too. And Philippians 1.8, he said, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affections of Jesus Christ. So he, as a parent, lovingly freaking out, and I'm sure that sometimes kids like to know that their parents really do care. And uh, and not hearing from them, Paul is letting them know how much he loves them. 
Paul really did have a pastor's heart towards them. He really did care. He was not taking advantage of him as his distractors had said. He was not lording it over as they had claimed. He truly loved them as a father in the faith. And he's showing his love to them by sacrificing Timothy to send to them. And he said there, why I'm left alone. So we do know that Paul did have some serious physical problems. Remember, he was beaten with rods and stoned to death. And, and one of the things that we discover outside of the Bible text is that he did have a horrible eye problem. And he actually said to the, the Philippians, actually said, hey, we'd, we'd give you our eyeball <laughs> if we could. Um, and uh, there's just nothing around it. So Paul, when we think about him, we, we know that he was short. His nose was broken and crooked. His voice, he couldn't speak very well. And his eyes were constantly oozing this pus that smelled horrendously bad. So when we think of Paul doing all that he did and all the places he traveled and all the things that he did, understand he didn't do it feeling great. Hey, guys, let's go. Hey, let's play a little tennis before we go preach today. Hey, you know, this wasn't the case. <laughs> Every day was, was Paul in the midst of wiping his eyes, making tents and, and traveling horrendous amounts of distances and being abused. And so for him to be alone, uh, you know, without somebody there to help him cope, it was a great sacrifice. But he sent Timothy, I like this, our brother, a minister, our fellow laborer. He has so many great things to say about Timothy. Timmy and Timothy are so close, he says. He's our brother. He's like, you know, a mother, a brother from a different mother, but we're like, we're melded together. And then he said minister, that's the word uh, that we get, that's a waiter, a servant, often translated deacon. And he's a fellow laborer, side by side, plowing the field, one on one handle and the other on the other handle. We're all together. We need him side by side. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, man, there's nobody like Timothy. He's the only one that's like me exactly, who cares for your state above everything, especially concerning anything in his own life. He always puts your interests first. There's nobody else I have with me that's that way, proven in character. And as a son to a father, he serves. Going on in verse 2, the second part of verse 2, Timothy came to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Verse 3 and 4 now. That no one should be taken advantage by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that you, we are appointed to this. For in fact... We told you before when we were with you that we should suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. So he first says two different words. We're here to establish you and encourage you. This word establish is exactly what you think, to firm, to fix, to strengthen, to make stable. So if there's anything that is throwing you off, you know, I, I know the years I went through college and as a pastor, you have somebody that's walking strong in the Lord. I remember having a, a lady uh, come and, and she had been growing in the Lord and she's like, Pastor, I don't know if I can keep coming to church anymore. And I'm like, why? Well, I've been having these Jehovah Witnesses come to my house like every day for the last two weeks and I don't think Jesus is God. <laughs> and it's like, why are you letting them in? You know, look at 1 John 3. It says, don't allow that to happen. But on top of that, what is your questions? And in literally five minutes, I answered her questions like, oh, I'm good now. Um, but that's the way the enemy works. There's just some people that are simple-minded or people that are not grounded enough. And of course, they've been through so much persecution. As Did you guys get wobbly and, and Timothy's coming to stop the wobbliness and to fix you, establish. The word encourage is the same word, the same root word for Holy Spirit. 
in John 14 to 16. It literally means one who comes alongside. So he's going to come and keep you from wobbling and fix you so you're a steady pillar. And then he's going to be there alongside you for a season. They haven't had that. I mean, imagine you've been taught by Paul for three weeks and everybody's three weeks in the Lord and we have no other pastor. And now all of a sudden, Timothy's going to be there for a few weeks, months, pastoring them. Whew, boy, that's going to be a big difference, isn't it? And their growth and their strength in the Lord. And this is all to, in concerning their faith. So no one, he says, should be shaken. Or I like the old King James, it says, moved by these afflictions. That was his fear. Because this young believer's three Sabbaths, four weeks at the most, Paul was there. And, and immediately when he left, he was being persecuted and they were being persecuted. It's, it is amazing having gone into the Eastern Bloc countries right as the Iron Curtain fell. And going and, and just out into the streets and preaching the gospel, seeing so many people come to the Lord. And then, then just this vacuum that, of course, had been there for decades of just ah, a Bible. And they're reading it. Of course, they were afraid to do that because they would, were afraid Soviet Union would take back over and they would be, uh, their names would be on some list of people that had become Christians, which means you're an enemy of the country. But at, when they got born again, they didn't care. And they just literally, and, and by uh, the missionaries that were there, taught Bible studies every day of the week, except for Sunday, interesting enough. But they would teach them every evening. They would teach an hour-long Bible study. They'd worship, have an hour-long Bible study, worship, have another. They would go from you know, six, seven at night till midnight every single night of the week. And that went on like that for years. And many of those people went out to other villages and started churches. They didn't want to. They just wanted to talk to their relatives. And they all got saved. And they're like, I guess I need to stay here with my relatives and, and help them learn what I've learned. But here was the amazing thing. I would be there and then I'd, we'd come back maybe three months later and I hardly recognized them. They had grown so much in the Lord that it, they were almost unrecognizable. How they were these solid, strong Christians who knew the answers to a lot of tough questions, who had read the Bible in those three months several times. And they knew some obscure people in the Bible. And it, it was amazing. I, I remember being there at at one conference I went to do, and, and somebody, we had a question and answer time, and somebody asked a question, you know, about Ezekiel 13 or something, and I'm like, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. And it was a group of pastors, and the guy who ended up answering it was one of the leaders that had only been about six months in the Lord, and he answered it perfectly. And I just, I realized, wow, maturity isn't a matter of time. It really is a matter of seeking the Lord and digging into the word. And so, again, you know, I can't imagine. Now, now, this is another issue. We, when we were there, the war broke out, and America went from being the best friends to the, Serbian, the Yugoslavians at that time. It was Yugoslavia before it became Serbia and Croatia, or Serbia and um, Kosovo and all of that, but... But as the communism was taking back over and kicking Americans, they were shutting down the churches, the Bible studies. And, uh, and they're like, what do we do? Go back to the Greek Orthodox Church, which was dead and horrible doctrine. And, and I, I said to them, no, you know, just get on your face and seek the Lord. Find a fellow Christian and, you know, pray in your bedroom and they said, well, how is that going to work with the church? And I said, okay, you, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, will grow in the Lord, just not as fast. The church, don't forsake the gathering together, another brethren. Especially us, as we see the, 
the second coming of Christ coming. But to them, it's like going to a bad church versus no church. I would choose no church. <laughs> but understand that the Lord hasn't forsaken you and you're not in some sin because you're not going to church. But you've got to realize your growing is going to be at a snail's pace. But when we return, when this thing's over, we'll come back. And so as it turned out, um, most of the, the missionaries were able to stay there and pastor, but sort of underground for um, oh, about a year. But anyway, he, he's, he's concerned that they're not shaken by these afflictions. They're not moved. That, that the hardship of their immediate hardship for being a Christian came upon them. Now, the word moved here is interesting, or shaken, this word shaken, it literally is the word for a, da- a dog wagging its tail. That's the word. And the way it was used in this culture is when somebody was flattering you. So, you know, the dog's at the table wanting you to give it some of your food off the table, and it's sitting there looking all happy and wagging its tail, and it's, it's basically manipulating you. It's saying, how can you not give me food? I'm so cute, and I'm so happy, and you're just so overwhelmed with my cuteness and my wagging my tail. How can you not give me something? This is the way they saw Satan. Satan is going to come in, and he's going to look so cute, and he's going to speak with such manipulative flattery. And this is, this is exactly the way he works. It's like, hey... You know, just come out and drink with the boys. <laughs> you know, don't go to church. You know, it's, we're going to stay up all night Saturday night. You don't got to go to church every week. Come on, let's go. And, and it was a flattery and enticement. And he's saying that I could see how the enemy would come in and say, hey, if you quit following Jesus, your life will be a lot easier. The persecution will cease. Your boss says, hey, if you quit doing that Christian thing and come back to the goddess Diana, I'll give you a raise. Dad says, hey, I'll give you a brand new horse. (laughs) Just don't be a Christian anymore. There are people like that. David Guzik says, without a good understanding of the truth concerning the place of suffering in the life of believer." We are in great danger of being shaken from the faith. We need to understand that being a believer and hardship go hand in hand. Not always, as we have seen in our country for most of the time, but now it's running out. <laughs> our season of not being persecuted for being a Christian, it's been running out, not just on us, but the whole world as we're coming to a one-world government, you know, no borders anywhere, and Satan comes in, and we go from nations. The Bible says in the last days, it'll be kingdoms, and there'll be 10 heads of 10 kingdoms. Nations are going to be blurred, but there's going to be these kingdoms. And in that kingdom, everybody is going to be persecuted for for not bowing their knee to the, the world system, to the world's government. You, you'll have to, you can't buy or sell or, or make it. Jesus made it clear, and we looked at this last week in John. Uh, he said, I'm saying these things to you that you will not be made to stumble. I'm saying this to you guys up front, so you're not stumbled. So even his apostles, he was thinking, they're going to be tripped up if they don't understand that persecution is coming. So understand, because it doesn't make sense. You know, we come in and a guy gets born again, he stops being an alcoholic, he becomes a better parent, he becomes a more honest person, he works harder at work, he's more family-oriented, he's being faithful to his wife, they have a better marriage. You know, and you're like, how can anybody not like this? People hate because they're in darkness, and they, they hate that. Well, I could tell you some stories, but I'll leave it there. But he says they're going to hate you because they hated me. 
They don't like my spirit. They're not going to like your spirit. They hated my words and they're going to hate your words. But those who receive my words will receive your words. It goes the other way around too. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul having to remind Timothy of this. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12, he says, you have carefully followed my doctrine. Timothy is having a struggling time. You can read the whole book of 2 Timothy, but he's wavering on several items. And he said, hey, be carefully follow my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, and what else? My persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, Iconum, Lystra, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. I'm still alive. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. As you read this letter to 2 Timothy, Timothy is sort of distancing himself from Paul because he's in prison. He's no longer evangelizing because it upsets people. (laughs) He's allowing guys that are teaching bad doctrine. He doesn't want to confront them. He doesn't want to have to debate them. So he's just letting them run rampant in the church with bad doctrine. And Paul is telling Timothy, you got to pastor these people. Yes, you're going to upset people when you preach the gospel. You're going to upset people when you tell them they're heretics and their doctrine is spreading like cancer and, and you've got to tell them to repent or excommunicate them. But he says, Timothy, you spent many, many years observing. One of the things you observed is how many times and in every place I was persecuted. For what? Because I was stealing? Because I was lying? Because I was being mean? I was loving people. I was caring for people. I I was, but it was because it's spiritual and those who are living truly a spiritual life will suffer from Satan's hand and those he stirs up. Interesting, uh, this verse always gets me in Acts 14, 21 to 22. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, They returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Listen how they what they said. This is their message: strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, "We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God." So the church was full of joy and excitement by being told the truth of. You guys have suffered. It's over now, though. It only happens in the first year as a Christian. And then if you get by the first year, you're persecuted again. (laughs) No. Paul says, your persecutions have only begun. (laughs) And there's many other seasons of trials, many other seasons of afflictions, many other seasons of difficulties. You're going to go through a lot more ups and downs before you finally cross over and enter heaven. And what was their reaction to that? Oh, no. This is horrible. I should have never signed up to begin with. They were encouraged. They were encouraged going, ah, I got it now. Remember when the apostles were first persecuted, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Rejoice. Because you're identifying with me, They're going to treat you the way they treated me. When they beat them, they all went out rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. So these afflictions that you yourselves know that we are appointed to, we as the apostles, Paul was appointed to, but also I think he's saying we as Christians are appointed to. Do we understand that? When you are going through affliction, when you are being persecuted, when Satan is causing your life to be hard and bringing hardships. This was appointed by God. He allowed it for his reasoning. What's the reasoning? We have no idea. Peter tells us very clearly in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Where is this coming from? But rejoice to the extent that you partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you also will be glad with exceeding joy. So he's saying, don't think this is coming out of nowhere. 
Hey, I had no idea persecution was coming to Christians. Hey, Paul is going to tell them at the very end here, we told you ahead of time. This was a part of the plan. Jesus stopped the multitude and he said, before you can follow me, you must first what? Deny yourself, die to yourself. Take up a feather bed as comfortable as you can get and then follow me. Is that what he said? He said, before you can follow me, you've got to die to yourself, pick up a cross, not a feather bed, a cross, a splintery, heavy instrument of death and follow me. Those who will lose their life in this world, life will gain it in the life to come. Those who gain their life in this world will lose it in the life to come. That was the message that Jesus preached. He told everybody up front, before you follow me, I am offering you a life where you're dying to yourself, not serving yourself, but you're serving others. I did not come to be served, Jesus said, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We are to follow in that same example that if Jesus died for us, then we should also be willing to die for him and for the church, for the believers. So Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that there is a, a present time of suffering, but God's in control. He's not surprised, and he has a plan for it. Do we understand that? God is not shocked by our persecution, our afflictions, our difficulties, but he's also got a plan for it. In Romans 5, 34 to 30, excuse me, Romans 5, verse 3 and 4, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Wow. Knowing that tribulations produces perseverance, endurance, patience. And that perseverance, endurance, patience produces character. And you guys need your character to improve? And that character brings hope. Again, the word hope in the Greek is not like the English, like, oh, I hope so. No, it's a certainty. It's only a matter of time. It gives us a greater faith to look for heaven. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Life is just a vapor, isn't it? Even if you live to be 100 years old, it's going to seem like a second. Though now for a little while, if need be, not everybody, but, most, but a lot of people, you have been grieved by various trials. And the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise and the honor and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? More than anything, more than having, you know, a warehouse full of gold, <laughs> find a buried treasure. Wouldn't you rather have your faith as a treasure that's been tried and proven and grown and is precious in the eyes of Jesus? more than anything. This is what he's saying. James, we know this passage well in chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, 2 through 4. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There it is. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work, that it may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, do you realize as Christians how far we can grow even in these sinful bodies in this sinful planet with Satan at our heels? That through trials we can grow to be complete, perfect, lacking nothing if we let the trials have their perfect work. Now, if you start complaining like the children of Israel did in the wilderness, what's it say in Psalms? They were complaining, we want meat, we're tired of the stinking manna. And it says in Psalms 104, God gave them meat, but there was a leanness in their souls. God will take you out of the trial, but then you'll have a leanness in your soul. It's not about getting out of it. God's going to take you through it. And this is where we got to be willing. Now, it's interesting when you look at this word affliction, when we look at it in the New Testament, 
there's actually two different Greek words that Paul uses. One is a word of affliction, not necessarily from Satan. It's just the affliction of this life. You know, we're all suffering because of Adam and Eve (laughs) and them sinning. So sometimes, you know, Jesus said, hey, look, I caused the sun to shine on the good and the evil. Isn't that true? Well, guess what? He allows his children, his sheep, his wheat (laughs) to be in the midst of a sinful world. So as a sinful world because of the sin of Adam and Eve, are also struggling with pain and hardship and disease, etc. We're going to suffer those same things. But yet, God will use those things for his glory. So I got this cold. Is it from God? (laughs) Or is it because I'm on planet Earth? It's irrelevant to us. If Satan gave it to me or my next door neighbor gave it to me, it's irrelevant because God turns all things together for good to those who love him. So it may be something that embitters the non-believer, but it causes us to grow in our character. So do we understand that? So right now, we're all suffering in America, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, under the wickedness of a wicked government that's over us right? The Christians don't have one government and the non-Christians have the government they want. We all together are suffering under a wicked government. We're all suffering in California under the stupidity of a tyrant governor who, whose his world is upside down. His, his mind is completely broken. You know, it's just craziness. I mean, didn't you think you were in the twilight zone when, when Biden says, yes, everybody with good credit is going to get charged more interest and everybody with bad credit is going to get good interest because we need to help out all those people with bad credit. Do you guys remember this? What's he going to do to show up and say, okay, I order everybody who's an employer to fire all your best workers and give a raise to all your worst workers. Okay, we're going to give all the scholarships to everybody that gets F's in school. And everybody who gets A's, you don't get any scholarships. It's, it's just insanity. And I digress. Sorry about that. <laughs> Doesn't affect me, though. I never even think about it. So we're all suffering. It's okay. So But then there is also affliction that does come directly from Satan. But Paul, when he says it, he often intertwines it. So we're going through affliction. Our brother Larry just went through affliction, and he's now completely healed. I'm here to report he is 100% healed with the Lord, healed in in ways that we can only imagine being healed. So again, we need to come back and realize the symbol of Christianity is not a feather bed. It's a cross. We are appointed to afflictions. For in fact, we told you before, Paul says at the end of verse 4, we told you before when we were with you that he, we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know it. So you, why are you, you guys hopefully aren't surprised by your persecutions, your afflictions, your difficulties. But if you're surprised because you didn't listen, because we told you it's coming on us, it's going to come on you, most likely, not necessarily, but most likely. Well, now we're in verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I sent to know your faith. Did did your faith last? Did it survive? Or is it weak right now? Remember, Jesus talks about this in that parable in Matthew 13. He says, 
When, I, when a person goes out and shares the gospel like Paul did in Thessalonica, some seed falls on the street. Bird eats it, the bird representing Satan, and that seed's gone. Nothing happens. But then the next seed, he says, in, in Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21, but he who has received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet has not, no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, here we are, because of the word they're being persecuted, immediately he stumbles. I don't know. Is that you guys? That I, I had to leave after three Sabbaths, four weeks at the most, and, and, and yet you're, you're now, even though you receive the word with joy, now you're, you're stumbling and, and you're slowly being taken away uh, by a hard heart, by Satan's attacks. Then the next seed in verse 22 of chapter 13 of Matthew. Now when we, you receive the seed, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Is that what happened? The cares of this world overwhelmed you and you went back to your pagan ways. And then the fourth is the good soil, verse 23. But he receives seed on the good ground as he who hears the word and understands it. I like the, in Luke 8, 15, he actually says, having heard the word with a good and noble heart, kept it, bared fruit with endurance, patience. But he goes on to say, he indeed in, in verse 23, that indeed he bears good fruit, produces a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So, here again, what is your estate? Paul's going to find out that these guys have stood firm, that they are bearing fruit, and, and Timothy's coming and saying, hey, yeah, you guys are bearing 60-fold fruit, but I'm here to strengthen you. You can bear 100-fold fruit. But notice he said, the tempter tempts you. <laughs> the tempter does his bag of tricks. We understand Satan's really good at his job, right? It's interesting that I have noticed that we as humans are made in God's enemy, in God's image, that we have the ability of creativity. We can sort of infinitely create. But angels who have not been made to that degree in the image of God do not have the same creative ability, but they can endure. <laughs> they are rascals, they can persist. But what we see all the way through the Bible is Satan just repeating his bag of tricks. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 11, um, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices lest he should take advantage of us. We're not ignorant. We need to not be ignorant of his devices. In 1 Peter chapter 5, warning the Christians in verse 8 and 9, he says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. And James says, resist him and he'll flee from you. Steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Misery loves company. <laughs> it's not a you thing. You see, this is one of Satan's plants. When he comes and attacks you, well, we love Christianity. It's you we hate. We think Christianity is great, but you're annoying. That's always one of Satan's bag of tricks is to say, oh, we, we, we have no problem with Jesus. It's you we have a problem with. Always trying to get you to go back into your shell and cover up and say, why did it ever come out to begin with? He's just trying to destroy your self-esteem, trying to destroy your self-image, trying to get you to think, well, I am a jerk. I am a nerd. I am an annoying person. I am a little over the top sometimes. I, it's none of those things. That's his plan. That's his game. Guys, realize this is going on. It's not just a you thing. It's an every Christian thing. He goes on in, verse, in 1 Peter 5, verse 10 and 11 to say, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. Let me say that again. 
after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm looking forward to that settling part, right? (laughs) Settling in heaven. But he says, Paul says, I I was worried lest my labor might be in vain. That word vain is exactly what you think. Empty. The end was nothing. It was emptiness. I, I had a bag. I thought there was something in the bag. I got home. I opened up the bag. It was empty. There was nothing in it. Paul is saying that we went to Thessalonica, we went through all the persecutions, you guys went through all the sufferings, and now no church exists in Thessalonica. There's nobody following the Lord anymore. That was my greatest fear. Remember, this happened in the Galatian churches, a whole region of Galatia. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul, Paul out and out says, I marvel that you have turned away so soon from him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven preach any other gospel, you let them be accursed. Paul says if somehow it looks like it's me, I showed up, some lookalike, Paul lookalike. And I'm telling you the opposite of what I said. Let me be damned to the lowest part of hell. If an angel, I'm Gabriel, let me tell you, Paul was wrong. Let me preach a new gospel to you. That would never happen, right? You guys know Mormonism? That's exactly what happened. He said, Angel Moroni show up and, and taught him Mormonism. He goes on in Galatians 3, he says, Who has bewitched you that you do not obey the truth? They were leading them back to Judaism, back under the law. And he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If you guys get circumcised again, he says in Galatians 5, Christ profits you nothing. If you go back to the law, you are estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, listen to this, you've fallen from grace. We're either saved as a gift from God, not of ourselves, not of works, or not. And then he says this in Galatians 4.19, My little children for whom I labor birth again till Christ is formed in you. So he had to go back to the Galatian church and start over. He had to first tear down all of the, the barriers that were there. Saying, okay, they taught you that you got to be righteous through getting circumcised and keeping the law. Let me explain why that isn't. He had to take that down. So after he broke all the barriers down, he's like, okay, now let me preach the gospel once again to you. Let's start over. Boy, that'd be heartbreaking. That wasn't just one church. Galatia was a whole region of Turkey that had been affected. We also know in the Corinthian church, Notice in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, and I, brethren, he calls them brethren. This is important. He's not telling them they lost their salvation. I don't think he's telling Galatian church they lost their salvation. He's just simply saying, we've got to start over and get all the poison out because the weeds came in and choked everything out, destroyed it. I have to come and pull all the weeds and replant the, the harvest. And in this case, he says to the Corinthians, When I came to you, I could not speak as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. I had to feed you milk and not solid food. And to this very moment, I'm still not able to feed you because you are still carnal. The Corinthian church, he's hearing back from them. I'm longing. How are you doing? I I, I love you with affections of Christ. I haven't heard what's going on. Here's what's going on, Paul. (laughs) They say they don't like you anymore, even though you're the father. They're kicking you out as the father. They're replacing you with Peter or Apollos, or they're all divided. The, The church in Corinth, they don't even fellowship together anymore. They broke off into all these fractions. One of one's, I'm a Paul. Another's, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I'm of. And he said, that's so carnal. See, when the Spirit of the Lord comes, it brings unity, not division. 
But he says to them, it's a carnal church. So let me tell you, it wasn't like Paul was saying, oh, I was worried about you guys for nothing. I never should have worried to begin with. I should have never wondered because it never happened. Paul's like, it happens. It happens. Satan's, Satan's alive and well on planet Earth. It happens. Satan does destroy people and churches. And I feared for you. So I come back and strengthen you and build on what we started, barely got going with. Well, in verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desire to see us as we also see you. So Timothy came back and gave us this good news. You know, you know what good news in the Bible is? It's the Greek word for the gospel. This is the only time in the New Testament when the good, this, this word, good news, which re- refers to the gospel, is used not referring to the gospel. Because Paul is saying this, hearing you guys that you're walking strong and you love us and you can't wait to see us, we're still in good favor in your eyes. Remember what happened. People came in and started blasting right away. Paul, man, that guy's, a, that guy's horrible. That guy just wants your money. That guy just wants to lord it over you. That guy's never coming back. He never cared about you to begin with. Some of the people at first started believing it, and he's like going, did everybody believe it? In Corinth, that sort of happened. They all hate him. First and second Corinthians, Paul had to defend himself, saying, you guys, you guys can't hate me. You guys need to quit disrespecting me. I'm afraid if you keep disrespecting me, God's going to spank you, and I don't want to see that. But, but here he comes in, they're like, no, they love you, Paul. They can't wait to see you. And Paul is like, oh, to hear you guys walking in the Lord and that these guys who've been shooting these fiery darts and trying to wound you and, and divide us hasn't, hasn't worked. You guys are walking solid, even though you barely know anything about Christianity, but you're still following Jesus. It's like, it's like when you receive the gospel. I have that much joy in this moment as when you first got born again. That's what Paul is saying. I think John says it best in 3 John 1.4. It says, I... In, first, in 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I, I can tell you that is the case in my life. People sometimes say, hey, how you doing, Brian? I have to correct them. I'm like, okay, you're really asking me how is the church doing? Because I'll tell you right now, and I've pastored decades now, 40 years plus, And when the church is doing well, I am doing well. (laughs) When the church is not doing well, I am not doing well. When the church is walking strong, I am happy. When the church is struggling, I'm very unhappy. And this is the way of the heart of a pastor. Just like if you were to ask a shepherd, (laughs) how are you doing? You're, you're asking me, how are the sheep? They're all healthy and whole and fed and doing well. And I've also heard of your love. That's the key, isn't it? We know we are Jesus' disciples by our what? Love. That's what we're all trying to get. This morning, I'm teaching you a Bible study because I'm trying to get you to love. That's it. But grace came Grace and truth, right? You can't have genuine love of God without the accurate truth. You see, Mormons act like they love you to get you to join the Mormon church. The Jehovah Witnesses act like they want you and desire you because they want you to join the Jehovah Witness church. But if we do this love thing right, I want nothing from you. I just want you to know Jesus and walk with Jesus because I want you to have eternal life. You see, the love is not a feeling, it's an action. And it has nothing to do with me. I get nothing out of it. The only thing I get out of it, if you follow Jesus, is we get to rejoice side by side in heaven. And you're going to look at me going, here's the guy who told me the gospel. And I'm going to go, yeah. 
that was me. It's great. Oh, give me a hug. You know, we're just going to be full of joy. It has nothing to do with earning my salvation or being right with God or, or I'm trying to fill up our church with people. And so I'm, I'm really proselyting you for my own reasons. But they remembered Paul and they rejoiced waiting for Paul to come. And Paul was like, oh, because so many churches, Satan gets in there and they never want to see me again. And they have all kinds of lies in their head about me that are not true. Well, verse seven through eight here, we're heading to the, to the end. Seven through nine, excuse me. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live. If, or the same word can be translated since, you stand fast in the Lord. We live since you guys are solid in Christ. What thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God? All our afflictions and distress, I, I don't even remember them. It's like a, a mother giving birth to the child, you know. In the moment of giving birth, it's like, pain, oh, I want to never do this. And, but, you know, a few years later, it's like, yeah, no big deal. Um, well, I don't know about that, but I, I know when Cheryl had our four kids, it was very painful. I had to lean over saying, breathe, breathe. My back was hurting. And I got like halfway through my, my hamburger with extra onions on it. And she's like, I need help now. And I couldn't eat all my hamburger. And I was hungry. And it she went on for hours. I'm like, oh, it was painful. It was painful. I, I can remember that pain. But now I don't think it means anything. I, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, man, I've been beaten. I've been stoned to death. I've been shipwrecked. I've been robbed. He gives this long list and he says, the greatest pain and suffering above all of those is the daily concern I have for the churches. That is my greatest affliction, is worry, worrying and praying for my kids. Older the kids get, the more you worry about them. And as Christians, we turn the worry into prayer. But now I'm comforted. I have a new strength. I live, I'm revitalized. Woohoo! I've never been this happy in a long time. It's a good news. Like, Oh, it's like the gospel itself, hearing that you guys are walking in the Lord, that you love us and you can't wait to see us and you're walking in the truth and you're growing in the Lord uh, in despite of all that happened. Remember Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Interesting, evidently, after many, many years of ministry, the Lord came to Paul, this is in Philippians 1, verse 21, 25, and said, your mission's done. You've done all of the work required of you. You can come to heaven right now. Or if you want to stay longer, you can. But it's going to be just as hard as it's been. And Paul there in Philippians 1, 21 to 22 says, man, I'm hard pressed between the two. Having to desire to depart and go be with the Lord. Oh, that's far better. But to stay here and to remain in the flesh is needful for you. And I know the decision without thinking about it. I will continue here with you as long as I can for your joy of the faith. Isn't that amazing? You have a choice to stay here and keep suffering and struggling with the church or to go die and go be with the Lord having finished your work. That's amazing. But Paul, that's the way he was. His life was the church and the, how well the church. Then he says, thanks, we render to God for you all the joy and all the rejoicing. Verse 10, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So notice Paul, he's praying this word Deomai in the Greek is strong, fervent praying. It's also the word begging. I'm begging God for you guys. It's not this prayer of, okay, let's all say a rosary. Let's all, Hail Mary, full of grace. Oh, I, I said 10 Hail Marys for you guys. No. He's like, I'm begging God for you guys and the specific things that come to mind. 
The word exceedingly here is more than is necessary. It's like if you had a glass of water and, and the water starts spilling over the side and you keep going, it's like, hey, why don't you shut the water off? You're, you can't have any more. This is Paul saying, I am praying above. It's spilling over my fervency. Anybody want somebody like that praying for them? I'll tell you, when I need prayer, I don't need the Baptist praying for me. God, whatever your will is, you know, I go to the Pentecostals in the church. Lord, heal him right now in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's what I want. I want fervent, believing prayer. And Paul here has a sense of urgency, and I'm praying above what's necessary. I'm begging God on your behalf. So we see Paul saying that he does it frequently, night and day, nonstop. They're in his heart. Jesus said in his parable in Luke 18 that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. We're going to see in this book, in chapter 5, it says, pray without ceasing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I'll pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my understanding. Sometimes I'm praying in my spirit. I can't think about it. I'm working. I'm doing this. But my spirit is churning and I'm crying out with groanings. In Romans 15, he says, I beg you, brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of the Spirit, that you strive. In the Greek, that's the word agonizomai. We get our word agony from it. Agonize together with me in prayer. That's how Paul did it. He agonized. Secondly, not only was it frequently, but he also did it exceedingly or earnestly. I love that in James 5, where it says of Elijah, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails what? Much. We're all righteous because Jesus made us righteous. And then he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't more spiritual. He wasn't more holy. He wasn't more knowledgeable. He had a nature, but here's what distinguished him from us. He prayed earnestly. Interesting, isn't it? That Jesus is telling us that if if you understand and have faith and realize that prayer avails much and you come to him earnestly, not with vain repetition, not trying to convince him to do your will, but you come and pray in his will and earnestly cry out that God will bring, in this case, an entire nation back to the Lord. An entire nation that was serving Baal after many godly prophets and judges, and the whole nation was turned from Baal back to the Lord through Elijah stopping the rain and starting the rain. The third thing we see Paul did is he prayed specifically. He prayed that they would see, that he could see their face. He prayed that they would mature, lacking in their faith nothing. They would abound in love. They would increase in their love for believers and the whole world, and that they would have a purified hope. Let me ask you the question. Who are you earnestly praying for? And do you know somebody that's earnestly praying for you? It, you know, you can't, you can't go and say, hey, would you repent and start earnestly praying for me? You can't really fix that side of the equation, can you? But you can fix the other side. Who are you earnestly praying for that they would grow in the Lord? That they would be strengthened in their faith, that they would be Come an evangelist. Epaphras was a man who prayed like that. Paul says, let me tell you about Epaphras in Colossians 4. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Well, verse 11 now. Now may the God of our Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. I love how Paul says, the God of our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, the Holy Spirit writing scripture, may the triune God direct our way to you. Beautiful and just the writing of it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit direct us unto you. And when we come, may the Lord have increased your love for one another, for the whole world. That word increase, it's super abound, overflowing without measure. I'll tell you what, in the Jesus movement, 
That's it. If you ask somebody who was in the middle of the Jesus movement under Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, and you say, what was it that drew you to church? Or what was it that drew you to the Lord? Without fail, they'll tell you, I was overwhelmed by the love. People genuinely loved me and cared. When they hugged me, I felt love. When they prayed for me, I felt genuine care for me. And they led me to Jesus. All I wanted was Jesus. I couldn't get enough of Jesus. I read the Bible to know Jesus. I prayed to know Jesus. I sang to Jesus. I just loved him. I wanted him lifted above every name. The love for Jesus, the, mainly the love that Jesus has for me, but then the love I have for Jesus. And that love just caused a revival all the way around the world. And Paul says, you know what this love is? It's just as we do to you. When we were there with you, that genuine love we had for you is now what's causing you to have genuine love for others. Well, finishing up here in verse 13. Also, yeah. Verse 13 now. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Establish your hearts in holiness before our God. You know that's happening right now, don't you? Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. Again, agape love is not a feeling, it's an action. He loved us. How do we know God loved us? He gave his only begotten son. How do we know Jesus loved us? It says right here, he gave himself for her, his bride, the church. That he might, here it is, sanctify, cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that we should be holy and without blemish. Christ died, it says, he, for the, through the one sacrifice in, in Hebrews 10, 14. Through the one sacrifice he has perfected forever. Those he's now sanctifying. On the cross, he finished the work of justification. And on the cross, he finished the word sanctification. We're going to talk next week about sanctification, by the way. Because there is a part that we play in it, even though the Lord's going to finish it. I love Jude. Oh, be washed in the word right now. Verse 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Amen? To God our Savior be alone who is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. We're going to study here in a couple of weeks in 1 Thessalonians 5. Actually, we'll look at it next week as well. Now may the God of peace himself, that word himself means without anyone else's help, sanctify you completely, perfectly, entirely. And may your whole, here it is, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And Paul ends this as he ended in chapter 1, as he ended in chapter 2, as he now ended in chapter 3, as he will end in chapter 4, and the way he'll end in chapter 5. Each of these, he says, coming concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's very first letter was about the end times. And every phrase he ended by saying, every thought he ended by saying, and you're excited, you're looking forward to the target at the end, and that's you being face to face with Jesus Christ. Peter 4 says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all things, have a fervent love for one another. Second Peter 3, he says, the end of all things is hand. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and holy godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? In Romans 13, he says, Knowing the time is now high time, wake out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. 
not in rivalry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So to establish us in holiness or in sanctification. Well, today we come, we end with these thoughts. Do you pray for others frequently, earnestly, specifically? Do you pray for their faith to be growing? Do you pray for their love to be abounding for believers and for the whole world? And is there hope, a purifying hope, that leads them to sanctification as we are seeing the day of the Lord drawing near? And of course, sufferings. Do we know, do we have a good solid theology of suffering that if it comes, it doesn't bother us or stumble us? We know that such things do come if the Lord permits, but he's in control of it and he has a plan for it. So we just rejoice that this is a part of him working out our character unto godliness. Well, thank you, Lord, for your word today. We ask that you would do great and mighty things that we know not of as we meditate on these things this week. Cause us, Lord, to grow deeper and deeper and deeper into you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. If there's any here today listening by streaming or here in the house, and you've not come to be born again right now, just believe. Jesus, I believe you died for me. You were buried, you rose again the third day, conquering my sin, paying the price of my sin. I want to receive that gift right now. And now surrender your life. Lord, I give my life to you. I want to learn to follow you, which means to deny myself, take up a cross. I want to follow you, losing my life in this world to gain it in the life to come. Here I am, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.